Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. First, a couple of notes. Uh, we had promised Robert Schaefer for last week, and we couldn't seem to get the uh, connections to work. There was an internet problem at his end, and he kept dropping out of the conversation. I think in the first segment, we only did one segment. The first segment, we lost about 45. Uh, we had about 45% of his content, and we thought that it's just not working and we'll have to do something else. I've invited Robert back for a later program, and we'll have him on to talk about uh, all these things that, uh, from the skeptical point of view. Today, I'm joined by Don Schmidt, who I've had on the program a number of times, and I think it's a good idea to have Don on simply because I think that the audience, I think that you out there like the discussions that we have. It's not adversarial. It's not uh, anything too uh, radical. It's just both of us who have been around the UFO field for like 800 years are familiar with a lot of the aspects of what's going on out there. And I think the discussions uh, help generate interest in, in the field and, and where things are going. So I invited Don on to Look at some of the things that have gone on in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, Avi Loeb and his uh, Galileo project. I keep wanting to say Project Galileo. It's Galileo project. And then the, uh, um, uh, Jacques Vallée's book on uh, the crash in San Antonio, New Mexico. And we're also going to talk about a new book that uh, deals with the Alamo because I think that it kind of fits in with the tone of the world in today's environment. So we'll, we'll do all of that. So anyhow, you all know Don Schmidt. He's been around forever. He's written books on Roswell. I've written books with Ro about Roswell with him. He's written a lot of magazine articles. He's invited to conventions. He's uh, was a, a member of the board at the Center for UFO Studies. 
and it's communicated with people all around the world about UFOs. Don Schmidt, welcome to A Different Perspective. Yes, I'm with you this afternoon in Morris Code after everything else has failed. So this is... <laughs> I was I was going to kind of ignore that. Um, yeah, we we were as a word of explanation. I even put a shirt and tie on. Come on, I mean, <laughs> we I didn't. Um, we were going to do this via Zoom with a video link up and all of that, and we couldn't for some reason get Don connected into the meeting. And I don't know where the problem was, where the glitch was, but it just wasn't working. So we thought we'd try Skype, and we got a message that Skype wasn't uh, working well. So now we're on the telephone, basically. So Don is on the telephone in his home in Wisconsin, or as we call it here, Wisconsin. Yes, and, Wisconsin. You're right. <laughs> and I'm here in Iowa. So let's start. Let's start with Jacques Vallée and his book. Uh, Trinity, a great UFO crash or something. I forget the, the exact best kept name. secret. Yeah, best kept secret. Yeah, it was yes. a secret, all right. Uh, Have you you've read the book? I take it. Well, I've perused it only because it was obviously old news to us. It was uh, it, it dealt with a uh, alleged witness, somebody that I had um, inadvertently met with or was introduced to after a. I did a lecture on Roswell in Ventura, north of L.A. I believe it was back '97, and um, at the time, whether it was our planes of San Augustine, he uh, mentioned the planes, and you and I both remember there were even areas of Lincoln County, you know, near Corona, that are even called the planes. It's just a open flat area of land that uh, that's how the ranchers often identify such regions but he specifically told me 1947 and he was trying to draw the connection to roswell and he was asking me specifically if there could have been a connection there was no talk about it being any time different than the roswell incident and i would then learn thereafter that um, he made a similar attempt to contact Stan Friedman, the late Stan Friedman. And just as I had pretty much brushed it off, so did Stan. It didn't provide us with anything that we could move forward with. And uh, if anything, it would have been much more to Stan's, you know, as far as a scenario of what happened in 47 than ours. I was going to say, if you've got another witness, an independent witness from Gerald Anderson and Barney Barnett, uh, a, a third witness coming forward talking about something on the plains of San Augusta, I think I, I would have thought Stan would have jumped all over that. Exactly. And uh, as it turns out, he didn't. But then, we, as we learned through the years, that was often the case with Stan. And as those that are going through his files... Uh, up at the archives up in New Brunswick presently, they're finding very little on Roswell. We were hoping that uh, there would be all types of potential leads, names, contact information. And as much as Stan, you know, was in the public limelight more than probably all of us combined, we were hoping that uh, there could be a wealth of such material. And sadly, so far, they're finding nothing that he, uh, true to you know, our definition of the, the late Stan Friedman, he was not an investigator. He was not a researcher. He was an archivist. He loved documents. He loved wading through papers, hoping that one would jump out and beat a smoking gun once and for all. He wasn't into, you know, actually, and as you and I would call it almost investigative malpractice, 
that for the one of the principal investigators, you know, in quotation marks, that was in contact with the late Jess Marcel Sr., that they never thought of taking him back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. Well, let me, you know, let, you me and I, let me interrupt here because there's a, yep. an interesting point about that. Uh, Johnny Mann, who was a reporter for WWL-TV in New Orleans, I believe. Yes, that's uh, correct. Took Jesse Marcel back to Roswell. Right. Uh, well, it would have been in the 80s, obviously. And Jesse Marcel couldn't find the location. He didn't know where it was. And they just sort of stopped in an open area that looks kind of like all the other open areas to film Jesse Marcel's segments about what he had seen and what he had done. So even if right. Stan had taken Jesse back, it probably wouldn't have done much good because he, he didn't really know where the where the debris field was or any of the other aspects of it. And were. neither did Stan. And for that matter, uh, and as you recall, Stan had never been out there before, if not for us, that he just wasn't interested in actually going to the Alamo, so to speak, go to the battlefield. And um, so you're correct. He could not have uh, provided uh, Jesse with any assistance getting to the actual location. But if you also recall when they did the In Search of episode with Jess, and he uh, later would place a phone call, and um, we have a copy of that, conversation between Jess Sr. and his son, Jess, Dr. Jess Colonel uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. And he was telling his son that if not for the ranch owner who then led them out to the site where he recognized like the windmill and some of the other, the role of the land, some of the other features, that type of thing, that uh, then it kind of came back to him. But um, that was the In Search of episode. I'm not sure exactly when they filmed that, but it, it was circa like around 1980 as well. Well, but you know, one, one interesting thing with, with, with Stan, you mentioned that he was sort of an archivist and loved to go through the documents. And I always got the impression that um, he was not interested in investigating the Roswell case any further. He was now hung up on MJ-12 and the search for right. the documentation right. there. I think he was having a great time looking for those documentations and going going through the uh, the archives looking for something to validate MJ-12. And he didn't become interested in Roswell again until we got involved and, and we had right. some luck right. in finding uh, the family of the sheriff, for example. Um, right, right. Talking to Bill Brazel, the, the, the son of the owner, uh, the, the yeah, they, had never, they had never even talked to Bill Brazel Jr., for that matter, if not for us. And I think it also became, it came, became abundantly clear that, that Stan, as we both describe his you know, search for the archive, search for the documents, that he had already moved on, that it wasn't witnesses. And we had a standing agreement with Stan that, you know, you come up with anything regarding corona, or north of Roswell, that type of thing, that we would expect you would provide with us, and if we come up with anything regarding the planes at all, you know, we will provide it to you. And it was a one-way street. One-way street. Well, there was, there was a point where I was sharing information about Herbert Dick with Stan. Right, right. But Stan wasn't happy with it because Herbert Dick was saying nothing happened there, and he was there, that case, he was right. there at the time. Right. Uh, he was... Uh, he, for those of you who aren't familiar with the trivia of, of Roswell, Herbert Dick was a, an archaeologist, and he was doing research on what they called the Bat Cave. And I always hesitate to say that, the Bat Cave, which was on the uh, eastern side of the plains of San Augustine, which is a big dried up lake bed. But where they were 
in the um, the uh, uh, cave, I, I said to Stan, well, he would have had a good view of the planes. And Stan said to me, well, we don't know how deep in the cave he was. And we don't know which way the cave was safe, facing. And I said, yes, we do, Stan. They, yes, they we do. Been, it was facing out over the planes. And, and they would have been at the front point. of the cave because they were right. looking for human habitation. Exactly. So that would be in the front of the cave. And he would have been in a position to see anything going on in the planes had anything happened there. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think that... Um, you know, the, the problem was Stan, as you said, moved on from Roswell and he was deeply involved with MJ-12. That had become what he, I, I think he believed would be the, would end up being the smoking gun. He was fully well, and deeply And deeply invested. I yes. mean, he was staking his very reputation on MJ-12. And to his credit, you know, he, he never did back down. He never reneged. Uh, and um, it, it, it took... Uh, you know, element of as far as uh, even I, I will I will say even courage to be as stalwart and as, as as steadfast as he was, because he was getting attacked from all sides. It was enough for the skeptics to, you know, shoot it down. But um, I'm trying to think of aside from maybe the Woods and a few others, nobody else was supporting MJ12. In the beginning, a lot of people did, but as right, right, yes. we as we moved through the investigation, and we found more and more things wrong with the MJ-12 documents, and found more and more hoaxes involved with it. I think we all kind of moved on and realized that this was a dead end. Uh, and I, 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 I'm not sure it's really to his credit for keeping that ball in the air, because it diverted an awful lot of attention and resources that could have been used elsewhere in the investigation of the Roswell, rather than arguing about the legitimacy of MJ-12. Well, of course, and as you, as we both recall, the, the fact that you know the Robert Bigelow became involved with Roswell, but not from our position, not from our standpoint. He came into it strictly because of Gerald Anderson, and as a result, uh, I'm sure it left such a bad taste in his mouth that uh, he from therefore you know washed his hands of the, the entire situation and just imagine if he would have backed us at the time uh, some of the progress we could have made especially when uh, a good number of the witnesses were still you know alive but uh, we've been uh, diverging quite a bit as far as getting off of trinity well but, i was uh, i was going to bring us back to that but we're getting close to a break here so i was kind of waiting for us for us to hit the break and then go back to the the, the trinity thing and i do want to get help to it. the I alamo know. stuff i do want to get to the alamo stuff as well because i think that's important yes. to talk about yes, i agree uh, because it, it suggests something about investigation and the way history can be manip manipulated and people writing books Very who have so. agendas and that sort of thing I'm uh, here with Don Schmidt. We're talking about, uh, well, we we're going to talk about Trinity. We're going to get back to that on the other side of the break here because I think we need to chat about that as well and some of my experiences with that. I also wanted to talk just a moment about UFOs in the Deep State, which was published uh, in early June, which is a discussion in the ways the Deep State has kept the real story of UFOs out of the public arena. And it provides an excuse, provides a reason for... Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. 
It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Why the secrecy and the cover-up persists today? Why people uh, in the government are attempting to divert our attention from UFOs and that sort of thing, even though we, we, we talk about what's going on with the UAP study. But we'll get back to that. When we come back, I'll be with Don Schmidt. We'll be talking about the Trinity, uh, the best kept secret, and other aspects of UFOs. So please stick around. Don Schmidt, we're talking aspects of UFOs. And even though I always have an agenda planned out for the program, it rarely goes that way. It's kind of like the old saying, uh, the battle plan goes out when the first shot is fired. Uh, we were going to talk about... No, I thought it was no good deed goes unpunished. But go well, there you, there you go. Um, <laughs> we were going to talk about Trinity, but Jacques Vallée's book, and, and you had mentioned that you had met the yeah. one witness. I got a... a, a document 11 years ago, which was, I guess, Paula Harris's interview with one Remy, of the witnesses. Baca, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I kind of I read the thing over and I just didn't find anything I found believable in that. Uh, and so no, I kind of no. again, that, that point. The, that was the reason that it was in one ear and out the other with me. And, and mainly because it was the planes and um, because nothing he described was even reminiscent of anything from Anderson or anyone, even, you know, it, it would have been close to even Barney Barnett, who we still, you and I, hold some reservation about whether he was describing what he had heard or personally experienced. Uh, I don't think we believe that he experienced anything in 1947. Even his former boss, Fleck Danley, who we had both talked to, uh, told me, as I believe he told you, that he thought it was around 1950 is when Barnett first told him about this, that type of thing. So, but again, another, another show. But then after Stan and I kind of brushed him off, who does he contact but our, 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 mutual, our colleague, uh, Tom Carey. And he engages Tom numerous times over the phone and even sends him at 
our demand. Well, you claim you have this artifact. We'd like to see some pictures of it, which he did send. And we kept trying to, and it's like, where have we seen this before? Where have we seen this before? And specifically in New Mexico. This looks familiar. This looks familiar. And then on top of it, and Tom is recording the conversations, he actually brings up and he starts to talk to Tom about how can I make money on this story? And as for you and me, that's the kiss of death. The moment they... I'm going to interrupt here because there's one point that we haven't made, and, I, and it's very important. The, the transcript that I have from the interview with Paula Harris... And mm-hmm. what it says in the book is the event took place in 1945. Right. And so it's right after the, in the time frame of the detonation the, the of the Trinity. Trinity. Yes. Right. At the Trinity site, San Antonio, New Mexico, isn't that far from Trinity. And and of course, everybody in the house saw the flash. Everybody who was alive in New Mexico in 1945 saw the flash, um, even though it was like really early in the morning. But that was the other thing that got me. If something like that had happened in 1945, the military response would have been completely different in 1947 yes. than it was. Yes. And Absolutely. so that, that was one of the reasons I didn't want, I, I just kind of blew the whole thing off. Uh, asking how we can make money is another reason to blow the thing off. And then reading the book, there were a number of things that I, I saw as, as anachronisms. They talked about how the military had showed up at the house after they had picked up debris asking, at the crash site. permission if they could come in and you know <laughs> clean the uh, retrieve the craft and bodies that type of thing. Yeah, but, can we but come more in? And... More importantly, they said, well, then, then they came in and said, well, it was just weather balloons. And I'm thinking they weren't right. using the weather balloon excuse in 1945. No, no, no. So that's an analogy. Um, well, the... there's so many commonalities, so many similarities to Roswell. And, and especially the, uh, you know, the Jerusalem cricket, for example, the only yes. witness that has ever, ever used that description is the late Frankie Rowe, based and, on and her father, Father Dan Dwyer. Yeah, who's uh, the, the fireman who went out to the site and, and said, uh, and she described, I, I, yeah. I think, yeah. Child of the Earth, which is another name for the Jerusalem cricket. But in their right. book, there's a picture of the Jerusalem cricket. Right. You know, right. So, you know, that, that's another good reason to what, what do you think would be Jacques Vallée's motivation for attaching his name to this book? It's like he's it's like he's come full circle that he started out very much as far as at the right hand of jail and Heineck and where a Heineck was becoming, as you recall, more and more nuts and bolts. And he was accepting even as an astronomer where he just constantly wrestled with uh, you know, the vast distances from point A to point B, he just, you know, could not, uh, you know, as far as as a scientist, even deal with that possibility. And yet he had to accept it. He had to accept that. I mean, it was something that was tracked on radar. It was interacting as far as as far as with the immediate environment, branches, grass, twisted uh, as far as areas of ground and uh, microwave effects. And conjunctivitis of people's eyes and burns. Well, you're, talking, you're talking about more than just Roswell. You're talking about absolutely the whole, in whole, general, in general, in general, and the point of, being, of UFO stuff. And that's where where Valet has started. And then when he got into Magnolia, as far as uh, passport to Magnolia, as far as uh, 
the idea that we were dealing with something interdimensional and he was trying to draw connections as far as to ancient folklore and fairies and dwarves and that type of thing. And, uh, you know, even demons and angels. And he was trying to lump this all together in one big pot, trying to create as far as some, you know, commonalities and some patterns that he could then scientifically point his finger and say that uh, it, we're not dealing with something manufactured on the planet as much as we're dealing something that is connected more to the human experience of just being here and uh, always, you know, in place of religion, applying something divine to even uh, paranormal experiences. And that's why as Heineck got older and to be with him, and he would constantly make the comment, I'm an old man I'm in a hurry, I'm an old man in a hurry. So he was more and more pressed to come up with a solution. And I see that's exactly what's happened with Jacques, who's even older now than Heineck was when he passed away. So it's, it's, it's as though he's now looking for that smoking gun. And we know that when he was in South America, and even with Ubatuba, and that he has been going out of his way to get tested some of the known artifacts, some of the, uh, as far as UFO remnants that have been retrieved throughout the uh, decades. And this would fall right in that category as far as I'm concerned. That he's, there is... he's trying to create his own crash scenario because he sees there's pay dirt. There's the possibility that it could have the highest payoff, so to speak. But hasn't he, I mean, his career, he's got best-selling books. Uh, I know, absolutely. I, close I don't Encounters, know. I mean, you know, well, he's portrayed in Close Encounters. Yes, absolutely. I, I just don't understand how he could be hoodwinked into this, into this story. You've got, in, in essence, you now have one witness whose story has morphed repeatedly to encompass more and more things, Um the and military. you know it better, and you know it better than I do. I mean, the way these children, now adults, describe, for example, the cavalier nonchalant, you know, recovery operation of the military, the army at that time. I was about to say that we've got we've got this crashed thing we don't understand. It could be, it could have been Japanese, it could have been Germans, because we're still in World War we're Still at war, correct. And they don't know what it is. They got it loaded up on their their flatbed truck to drive out of there, and then all the military go, takes off and goes to lunch. And they leave it, it overnight. Leave it <laughs> unguarded. Absolutely. I mean, in contrast to what we've heard throughout, as far as Roswell, I mean, not only as far as the cordon established just at the debris field, but even setting up the cordons, blocking off the road, essentially blocking off the city of Roswell, and here the kids are able to come back supposedly and retrieve this remnant, this piece, when, as it turns out, it's nothing more than the flange of the, the rotor of a windmill that uh, we recognized eventually and we, we saw for, you know, the, the identical match. That's what it is. Well, what's interesting, claim, they, also, they what? also talk about this, this metallic debris, this loose debris that you could wad up and it goes back to its original form, but it's in long strips and they were using it on their Christmas trees for decoration. Right. Right, handing it out as far as right, right. So it's, um, it becomes preposterous. It, it, preposterous, and, and and I guess if not for a valet, it's like okay, it's just it's just a it's a good novel. 
It's, and it's not even that. It's I was going to say a travel log and a family history, as you even yourself very aptly describe it. But that valet would become involved with this. Uh, I can only figure that it's because of his advanced age, and again trying to come up with some resolution. But he well, he picked the the worst possible case to become involved with. Uh, but we, we've seen this sort of thing before, meaning people with uh, single witness UFO crashes that have now exploded into the mainstream. I'm thinking of Cape Girardeau, for example. Yes, yes. And, uh, what is it, Charlie, Charlotte Mann, who seems yes. to be a nice, nice lady uh, who uh, communicated with Len Springfield. But that in the same vein is it's not even a firsthand witness. She didn't see anything herself. She just knows what the family tradition is, at least with, with the San Antonio, and I say San Antonio, New Mexico crash, at least they had an eyewitness still alive that they could talk to. And as you know, that Len was quite, uh, you know, a story collector, and that 90, probably 99% of the, the stories he acquired there were no corroborating witnesses. These were single individual tales passed on to him, and they were non-starters. Well, he always, nothing... point, he always made the point, to me at least, that you know, he wasn't necessarily believing the stories, but he had the information, and he thought it should be yes. passed on to somebody else who might pick up the, the story and run with it to see if it played out. But he also, if you go back and look at his status reports, there's, there's time and time again where he said, well, this case turns out to be a hoax. There's a problem with the story and that sort of thing. So he wasn't endorsing these cases. He no, was no, no, not at all. He was providing the information in case somebody else wanted to follow up on it and take it to its ultimate conclusion. Which would have been was planned to be us. But then, um, as you <laughs> almost accurately put it, third party interference. But yes. uh, that's another story. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're going to do here is we're going to move on to uh, Avi Loeb. He's the Harvard astronomer who claimed yes. last spring that an alien artifact had moved through the solar system. You and had no him on your show, there right. A, there was an extraterrestrial body that came through the solar system. It came from outside the solar system and moved through it. The only question is, was it a natural phenomenon, a natural thing, or was it something that had been manufactured by someone else and sent on as sort of a robotic probe looking for other civilizations and other life forms and that sort of thing. So I think when we get back here, we'll take a look at that and uh, discuss it and maybe in a shorter fashion so we can get off because I, I want to do something with this latest book on the Alamo because this really annoys me. And That's I think why we should, I mentioned I, I, it to you. Yes, yes. and I think, I think the thing is, I know... We have very eclectic interests, and in, in history is, is history is one of those interests. And I think a lot of people have not just focused on UFOs, but on these other things. And there's aspects of this that relate to UFO research Absolutely. and UFO investigation that I think is, uh, is important for us to follow up on. Very so good. when we come back, we'll take a look at that. I also wanted to mention that there's some other fine programs about the paranormal that you can find at xzbn.net, which is uh, the Exxon Broadcast Network. Uh, take a look at the listings. You can go down the uh, sides and take a look at what they have there, and you'll find some programs that I'm sure will interest you. Of course, mine is the best one there, so <laughs> be sure to 
tune into a, a different perspective and look at some of the past uh, stories. I also should mention there's a, a uh, embedded player on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I think there's 170 programs on that. Those are all interviews I've conducted over the years with various people about uh, UFOs, so you can scroll down there and if there's a specific interest you have, you can scroll down and, and find that. And there's normally a um, listing. Use the search engine, type in the name of the person, and uh, you can find what the, probably what you're looking for is what I'm trying to say here in my convoluted way. Uh, you are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and we'll be right back. So please stick around. genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. I am joined by Don Schmidt. We're talking UFOs for the main part. Uh, we've discussed the Trinity, uh, the best kept secret, which is Jacques Vallée's book about a crash near San Antonio, New Mexico. We've mentioned Roswell many, many times. Uh, my book was Roswell in the 21st century, which is sort of a cold case look at the Roswell uh, events so that uh, you can get, a, I, th I think, a clearer picture. And I know, Don, you've done a number of books uh, Look for Don Schmidt at Amazon.com and you'll find a whole raft of books about Roswell that he and I have written and that uh, he and Tom Carey have written about, uh, ooh, about, ooh. Yes, ooh, about the Roswell case. Uh, when we went away, we had um, sort of finished up with Jacques Vallée, I think, finished off Jacques Vallée. Uh, and we wanted to move on to Avi Loeb. He's the Harvard astronomer, as I mentioned, who talked about this artifact that moved through the solar system. There's no question there was an artifact that moved through the solar system yes. in last spring. It, it uh, wasn't moving very fast, which I think confused a lot of people. And it was clearly not something that was created with the 
beginning of the solar system or came from inside the solar system. It came from outside. So it was, in, in that respect, it was an alien artifact. And last, uh, a week ago Monday, he had a press conference in at Harvard. I actually got an invite to it. It was a, you had to be invited to the press conference, and I got an invite so I could sit in on it over the internet and listen to what they, they had to say. And they were creating something they called the Galileo Project, which is a search for additional artifacts like that. They figured if there's one, there's going to be others. I think from the impression I got that they believe that the vast majority of them will be something natural, some kind of natural phenomenon, some kind of natural artifact that we haven't seen before, something like that. But as they said, and as we have said in the UFO field for many, many years, it only takes one to prove alien life uh, is, is out there. The one comment that I found interesting, the resident skeptic, whose name escapes me at the moment, was on the program as well, talked about the um, universe, not only our galaxy, but the universe teeming with life. There's life all over the place, according to him. He said that um, rarely does it reach the level of civilization, meaning intelligence develops to the point where it could create a civilization. And if you think about our Neanderthal relatives, um, they reached a level of sophistication where they created some interesting artworks and were on the road to, the, I guess, improving, improving their life and, and, and that sort of thing, but they eventually went extinct. And his idea is that this rarely happens that you have a, a life form that develops intelligence that can create a civilization. So in one respect, life is all over the place, but in the second respect, not a lot of it, intelligence life out there. So that's kind of where they're coming from. They don't want to look at the UFO phenomenon so much um, because that's the past. What do you think of all of that, Don? Well, it it uh, reminds me of the uh, scientists in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, Professor Barnhart, when he's confronted by the alien Klaatu. And he talks specifically about curiosity making for good science. And this is refreshing to me. Because, you know, albeit it's a throwback, like even the Air Force uh, Project Twinkle, the idea that you set up enough cameras and you might capture something on film, as it was for the Air Force back then. But nonetheless, even for the plan to use, like, high-resolution telescopes and detectors with cameras and computer systems, I guess it just comes down to where are they going to do this? You know, UFO hotspots, uh, who's going to determine that? And... Um, I, I appreciate the fact that they're already generating some funding, and no less than uh, Seth Solchak, as far as some SETI, is on the, the board of directors with the group and uh, is, is totally applauding the effort. So maybe we'll have a joint effort with SETI, which to me would tend to sabotage the entire effort. You know, just the idea of you know, transmitting arcane radio waves, radio signals, you know, expecting that a higher life form would be using the same technology. But um, nonetheless, I think it's refreshing in that he, too, has a passion. He has, you know, had an experience in what he believes that he detected, what he, uh, as far as has stood up to his own colleagues in d demonstrating that we're dealing with an artificial intelligence, 
albeit as far as uh, with that object that passed within our vicinity. But nonetheless, now it's a question, are there other such artifacts? Are there things actually orbiting the Earth that may not be ours? And um, more power to them. I mean, welcome to the club. I was a little concerned about their seeming disdain for old UFO reports. Because I, and in fact, I sent him a question asking him specifically about the Condon Committee. Uh, and they, he responded that the, um, they, they just weren't interested in this past, the past UFO stuff. They wanted to move on beyond that. I think they're missing a bet there because even if you dismiss an awful lot of the UFO reports as being useless, I mean, the data gathered being useless or, or corrupted or poorly gathered, when you move into something like the electromagnetic effects, you've yes, got the yes, UFO yes. interacting with the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think there Absolutely. might be something to be learned there. And um, I've been going to send him a note to suggest that maybe if, if there was guidance from them at the Galileo project, that we in the UFO community, and I'm thinking of people like Mike Sorge and Jerry Clark, for example, who've been around right. for as long as you and I have, um, and have the credentials to look at this stuff in a more unbiased, rational way, that it may be, it may be some kind of a document that could be created by us that would be helpful to them without really dragging them into the UFO fray. And you are correct, and but it's the same dilemma that we have with the recent, as far as Pentagon report to Congress, the idea that they only acknowledge the phenomenon from 2004 to the present, as though there's no previous history. When you and I would, you know, promote the fact that the best cases of all times took place before 2004, and as a result to just deny the history of the phenomena, um, the, the focus becomes too narrow, and as a result, the fallback is, is, is more likely to remain conventional, that it's ours, it's Space Force, it's the Navy now experimenting as far as the plasma uh, beams as far as out over the Pacific, which is one of the more recent uh, uh, explanations regarding the, the Navy sightings. So it's hardly earthly back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. You're dealing with something truly beyond our technology. And so for, for that reason alone, it becomes suspect. And then why, as far as Abby Loeb's project, how does it, why does it, it, it seem like a, 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 a bit of a, a, a throwback to uh, what the Navy is even working on right now, as though um, it's, it's too, it, it too closely coincides with that narrow focus? Well, I think the one thing that they said was interesting is they wanted to keep their eyes on the sky. And what they're really looking for is artifacts not found on Earth or UFO sightings from Earth, but actually objects out in space that they can detect. And our technologies evolved to the point where we can detect something that's very, very small at a, at a great, great distance. And I think that's why we had never seen anything like this before, as our technology finally evolved to the point where we could detect that sort of a thing. Right, I, right. We're talking about it being only like 100, 100 yards uh, long, something like that. I mean, it's the size of a, basically a football field. So in, in astronomical terms, that's relatively small. And they were able to detect it, but it wasn't moving very fast, which means it would take literally tens of thousands of years to move from one star system to another, unless it braked before it got here. And I, I don't 
I didn't see anything that suggested they, they saw any evidence of it breaking, although it did begin to accelerate as it moved, moved beyond the Earth. Well, what you might also encourage, and if, uh, you might recall that back with QFOS years ago, we had that offer from Aerojet that if we could provide specific days, times, and locations, that they could do a computer satellite search as to anything that may have been tracked in that vicinity at that given time. And the idea that with that, you know, we, with the advent of satellite tracking that um, we're sure, I mean, we've always, you know, had this broad idea that if anything is coming into our airspace, there should have been some detection. There should have been something that tracked it actually arrive and depart. And the, and the thought that, well, now we're first going to look into this as, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, as that, the use of that word curiosity after all this time. And, uh, again, we have a wealth of, of material that they could have already wade through and just to see if, uh, if they have things that have been recorded, that have been tracked just based on the past history. Well, you know, back when they, you mentioned the green fireballs, and there was a plan to set up cameras in New Mexico to see if they right. could capture any of the green fireballs. And then Ruppold in his book said that they never got the cameras, they never got it set up, or they got a single camera and they moved it around. And he said, I mean, Duck Hunter knows that's not what you want to do. You want to stay in one location. Correct. But there was a note in, I don't remember if it was in his book or in um, some of the information from Project Blue Book, but apparently a picture was taken. And I've never been able yes. to find that picture. Yes. But well, just like you can't get you can't get any frames or any of the film, the gun camera cases claimed in Blue Book. So, uh, yeah, for the, the uh, project being declassified, it, it, it's it's far from being declassified. And mentioning Twinkle, and then you also have Ray Stanford's as far as uh, Operation uh, Star Starlight, uh, if I have that name correct. The idea of setting up tracking equipment. And with, with, again, with the intent of tracking unknowns. Well, I know when I talked to um, Dan Sheehan and I, the, the interviews in, in uh, UFOs in the Deep State, uh, talking about that, and he wanted to look at the classified Blue Book files. It was at the point where the Blue Book files had been declassified. And he wanted to look at the classified files because somebody told him they existed. And apparently he had an opportunity to see some files that were not released with Project Blue Book. Um, so... Uh, that was kind of an interesting thing, the suggestion that there was a secret part of Blue Book, a secret collection of materials through Blue Book uh, that that uh, have not been released. So we have a body of information, I suppose, an archive of information that if we could get our hands on it, uh, might take us in a slightly different direction. And I worry about, uh, with the, the UAP, they said, uh, of course, that we couldn't identify the the object in what 143 of the cases, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm thinking yeah, but somewhere when you get better information, you're going to start identifying it, and I, I'm wondering if it's kind of going to be like uh, Condon 2.0, where we now explain everything away. Yeah, the big setup once again, the high anticipation that uh, the vast majority remain unexplained, that uh, and certainly the case with more information, more data that then things all become, uh, instead of possible, uh, this or that, they become the weather balloons and the uh, astronomical uh, objects that uh, are readily identified. But, but you were the one, Kevin, for example, that pointed out, like especially 
with your acquiring Blue Book, the fact that all those gun camera cases, I mean, they are described in detail, but again, where's the film? Not a single frame. And uh, so there obviously is a good portion of Blue Book that still remains classified. And so we're talking a history that still remains rich with information, undisclosed, and instead of, yes, it's great that science now would like to move forward, but the historians need to still push through FOIA and as far as through personal efforts and maybe, like as Stan, going through archives, that um, there may be some uh, potential breakthroughs that just with the, the diligent effort on our part. Well, we're going to have to take our last break here, and I'm sorry about that, but we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the Alamo because there is relevance to the UFO phenomenon. Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. There's all kinds of information there. You can take a look at my review of Trinity, the best kept secret, which is no longer a very good kept secret and that sort of thing. Um, and we will we'll be back right after this. You are listening to a different perspective on the XO broadcast network. So please stick around. genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. I am joined by Don Schmidt. We've been talking UFOs and a lot of different things. Uh, before we move on to the Alamo, I'll mention quickly that um, Ali Loeb's discussion of the alien probe smacks heavily of some of the Star Trek episodes that we had, or Star Trek movies we'd seen in the past. I'll just throw that out there for you to consider later on because I do want to get to this point. Don, when I communicate with him about doing the program again, mentioned this new book about the Alamo. Fill us in on that a little bit, Don. Well, I haven't seen the book. I just saw a review of it. But it ah. was, again, to me, it's it's another attempt at revising, you know, a. Uh, Stallworth, as far as uh, element within the history, the founding of the country, and thereafter the establishment as far as the, you know, the independence of, of Texas. And for you and I, when we were at the Alamo together, and have been there since, and just growing up as far as with that just total admiration for the, the men who fought and died there, and uh, in, in, in true patriotic form as far as uh, in dying, 
for even the young country at that time, and to see these constant attempts at re- these revisionists, these people that are just constantly rewriting history for coming up with nothing more than a new angle to write a book. And in this case, it's a number of college teachers, as I understand it, uh, three of them, and uh, they essentially are trying to write this off as being nothing more than a bunch of land hoarders who were essentially just trying to steal up as much territory in, uh, in Mexico and uh, keep it to themselves, and, uh, and that it had nothing to do as far as with uh, them val- valiantly dying as far as uh, in the final siege of the, uh, the attack by Santa Ana, and they even play down the idea that they were there for 13 days. They make it seem like they just held up there the very last day before the final attack. And um, again, to me, it just smacks up this constant effort to just eliminate all of our heroes, all the people that we've admired and grown up with and have aspired to be like. And whether it's within the UFO field, the, the Dr. Heineken, and even Jacques Vallée, who we were talking about earlier, that uh, it, it's one thing to debate and, you know, wrestle with different aspects of history. But when it comes, it comes down to personally smearing and attacking somebody who you've never met, have, uh, you know, really no concept as far as what their true motives, what was in their heart at the time, uh, to, me, to me it just smacks of yellow journalism. And so to me it's just another attempt at, uh, you know, bringing uh, the Alamo down to where uh, we diminish it to just uh, a, a Sunday picnic. Well, the one thing that struck me was their their discussion of it being a land grab. And I, right. when I was doing research, and I can't remember what it was for, uh, in graduate school, I was looking at a number of books where they, uh, journals, where they argued about that. But the problem to, to me is that the Mexicans had invited Americans into, well, Texas, which is was part of Mexico, invited them in because they wanted to populate the area to right. keep it out of the hands of the Spanish, whom the Mexicans had taken away from. Exactly. So the idea that the Americans moved in just as a big land grab is nonsense. And it seemed that the Texas Revolution was sparked not because of the ownership of the land, but because the Texans, uh, the Texicans wanted representation in the Mexican government. And Santa Ana was denying them that. All they wanted was that. And it was Santa Ana who kind of forced the revolution by his invasion uh, into putting down this alleged rebellion. Uh, Up until about March 2nd, and the the Alamo fell on March 6th, the siege started on February 23rd. Uh, It was until March 2nd that they began talking about um, breaking away from Mexico. So the whole premise seemed to me to be a little bit unreal or unhistorical, I suppose I should say. Yes, yes. And even look, Jim Bowie, that was one of the reasons he was there. That was the reason that he was buying up as much land as he could. It was the reason that he even you know, fell in love and married a, a Mexican woman. So there's, there's nothing as far as, uh, you know, you know the, the, the thought that, you know, you know, Davy Crockett with his Tennessee boys, that they went all the way down to Texas, that they had any intention of uh, encroaching as far as on any Mexican territory. There was never anything, you know, he had just been defeated as far as his uh, re-election as far as in Congress, and as a result, uh, it's, it was back to hunting and fishing and whatever else, uh, other adventures they could find. 
But the point being that they had 13 days that as, the moment they saw that uh, they had no chance of, uh, as far as holding that Alamo mission. And, you know, in an earlier book, it was even suggested that they were hoarding gold at the mission, that in the, the well, that they had all this gold stashed. And it's like, yeah, we're all going to die to protect that, and uh, nobody's going to be able to spend it. You know, you got to think this, these things through. Well, because... to, well, to bring it to the, the point of ufology, I mean, we run into the same thing here. We have a case that we investigate, um, and Roswell Springs to mind is one of the better examples where it's clear something fell. Nobody disputes that. And we work to find out exactly what it was, and we look at all the avenues, the terrestrial explanations, we can't find anything that fits, and all of a sudden the Air Force brings Project Mogul on us as if this is the explanation. Uh, and and now we back off, well, then Roswell was just a bunch of weather balloons strung together in this Project Mogul thing. And it's simply not true. And if you take, I, I still hear people, I cannot believe that, I still hear people who say, oh, well, that just turned out to be Project Mogul. I'm thinking, do you understand what Project Mogul was? Do you even understand it No, no, all? no, no. It's one thing when the press always falls back on, uh, well, doesn't the government claim that it was a Russian spy balloon, that type of thing? Okay, they're the unwashed on it. They, they, don't, they don't know. But when, and as you and I both know, we have a lot of colleagues that insist it was mogul for no other reason than they don't have a part of this action, so to speak. They just insist that it has to be mogul for no other reason than it brings Roswell down to size. It's the elephant in the room that they refuse to accept. Well, if you look at it from the skeptical point of view as well, they have to they have to buy into mogul because there is no other explanation. That, Correct. But, the, but mogul doesn't fit the facts as we know them, and I mean the established facts. Um, and even even the the way it's presented in the world today is a misrepresentation. I know in Carl Flock's book, Roswell Inconvenient Facts and the Will mm -hmm. to Believe, he has an illustration of Project Mogul that's 600 feet long. That was the ones that were being launched on the East Coast. When they got to New Mexico, they had tr trimmed them quite a bit, and they were only 400 feet long. Still, they were a, a hazard to aerial navigation. But it wasn't as long as they claimed it to be. It did no, not no, have no. as many balloons. And it was common weather balloons, common materials, something that would have been easily recognizable. Absolutely. As and it was hardly the balloon wreckage that was in General Ramey's office, which served as the explanation at that time. That is not a mogul balloon. And as we both know, I mean, that balloon came from Roswell. They were launching them in conjunction with their bomb drop exercises, their testing. There's even that picture in the Roswell yearbook of the balloons hanging from the rafters in one of the buildings. They knew the balloons better than anyone. Well, I think that we, you know, we look at all of that sort of thing and we look at history, and, I, and that's where we bring in the Alamo. I mean, uh, I've always wanted to write a book called History as I Would Teach It. And it wouldn't be about dates, and it wouldn't be about places, it would be about the people who were involved. And you look at the people involved. I would, I, I would say things that would just annoy people, like Crazy Horse, and we're moving away from the Alamo, but Crazy Horse is probably a serial killer. And I say that because um, in the late uh, mid-1870s, as the Black Hills were invaded by, I say invaded, by prospectors looking for gold, Crazy Horse will go out and hunt them and kill them. 
So this was at the time of Custer. So it was just, just prior to 1870, just prior, just prior yes. right, which was and, 76. And, yeah. And he would go out and hunt people. He just periodically go out and hunt people and kill them. Uh, and that which, would be the definition of a mass murderer. Yeah. Well, serial killer, certainly. Serial and of course, killer, now yeah. you say something like that, and it's going to inflame mm-hmm. an awful lot of people. But if you look at the evidence, you can make a case for that. And I would, if I was doing a book on American history, I would do that. I would start the book not with Columbus, but with all the people who arrived prior to Columbus, including the Vikings and some Chinese and uh, some uh, other Spaniards who got there long before um Columbus got to the New World. But I mean, the point simply is you look at the history and you try to go where the evidence takes you, not write the history with an agenda. I don't like the Texans. I don't like the heroes. Ergo, I'm going to run down the the Alamo. And the wonderful thing about the Alamo is we have the letters from Travis, William Barrett Travis, the, the commander of the Alamo Post. We have the letters from Davy Crockett. So we know their mindset at the time. They knew they were going to die. They weren't protecting anything except their desire to, as far as uh, create a, a, a level of, of freedom for as far as this new territory. And they stood in defiance of, of Santa Ana, as we've, we've discussed, but the point being they could have left. They had 13 days that they could have hightailed it out of there. And they didn't. Well, well and, and, and the point, well, the, the place was surrounded. They couldn't have got out. Well, yeah, 32 guys got in on March 1st, I think it is. Right. right. And, and on March 5th, a guy named, I think it was Louis Rose, decided he wasn't going to die in the Alamo. And he dropped over the wall and took off into the distance and uh, lived long after the Battle of the Alamo. Exactly. So. Exactly. So, uh, again, the, the evidence speaks for itself. Uh, it's no different than science. When they have a preconceived theory and they set out to prove it, you omit a lot of other data that may be significant as far as uh, to your own objective. And that's what we run into with the ufology is when you start arguing, debating UFOs, uh, oftentimes it ends up where you're only cherry picking the evidence that supports your position, as opposed to looking at all the evidence and see what road it takes you down. Uh, and I, I've said before, and I, I've heard people repeat this, you know, we're, not, we're engaged in an investigation, not a debate. If I find evidence to suggest this really important case has a mundane explanation, I want to publish that. I want that Absolutely. information out there. Because and you and I, and no one can fault both of us. We were total skeptics going down to New Mexico that first time in February of 1989. Neither one of us had even read the book Roswell Incident. We used it as a reference book thereafter. We used it for names, but we were so confident we would go down, and within that weekend, you know, weather balloon or something just as prosaic. But uh, we did not have a pre We went where the witnesses, we, we went where the, the, the case took us. And I think the turnaround was Bill Brazel when we sat down with him oh, yes. and with him and, and learned Shirley. what he had to right. say. Because everything had gone badly up to that point. Uh, we're going to have to break it off here, Don. I'm, <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. We did get the Alamo in a little bit. and We did talk a little bit about the investigations. Um, what's your latest book? Uh, Roswell, The Ultimate Cold Case File, or Cold Case Closed. 
So in other words, we present it as a, our Roswell's Day in court. The idea as far as opening statements, evidentiary, best eyewitness testimony, and then the closing arguments. So that's the current book. And I think a good companion would be Roswell in the 21st century. So yes. there you go. Yes. Uh, thank, thank you for taking the time, Don. I appreciate it. We've as had always, discussion. Kevin. I always enjoy it. Very lively. Great. Okay. Thank you, Don. You bet, Kevin. Um, as I say, you know, uh, Roswell in the 21st century takes a look at that. Uh, take a look at UFOs and the deep state, because I think there's some information in there that's going to surprise people. Uh, things that I've been able to uncover, discover, been told to me in the last few years has kind of altered some of my thinking about how the uh, UFO field is developed and where it needs to go. Uh, and I think some of the important things. So take a look at that. I'll uh, be back in 167 hours with, uh, with more incredible information. And you have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Thanks for tuning in. genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called micro laser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. 